0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In
1: 1965, at Carnegie Recital Hall in New York City, an exhibit would feature an up-and-coming avant-garde artist. It was called simply Cut Piece. The performer, a woman, enters the stage and kneels in the center. She is fully clothed, but next to her is a pair of scissors, really large fabric shears. The audience knows their role. That is always their move in the work of Yoko Ono. Ono will remain motionless and silent. As good as a Picasso might sketch a guitar in cubic slices. Or Van Gogh might paint that yellow flower. Her art is in remaining still, not expressionless. Cognizant, though, that she has no idea what the audience will do with her instructions, which is this audience is invited to cut a piece of clothing and keep it. She never breaks the act. Though it's already menacing. These shears are quite large. and Yoko Ono is 5'2". The audience is reluctant at first. But eventually, some walk up and they take a small snip, a small piece of clothing, maybe a little square. All the while, They are being recorded. So there is the live audience for this art, and then there is the audience that will watch it later. The audience is creating the art, watching the art, and part of the art. Then there's the audience that will watch it. And heck, there's people that will talk about it, like us right now. All of this is intentional. The audience continues to follow the instructions and... Although she is by now an artist that's known for avant-garde in Tokyo, in London, and in New York, with gallery performances, apartment performances, when she's used to it, cut piece is a special one for obvious reasons, more difficult performance. When she does this in Tokyo one point, a man grabs the shears and is holding them up, hovering over her, as if he's going to like hit her with the shears, I mean you see the shock on her face. It comes out in the film. He obviously doesn't, but those moments are there. And here, there's a moment in New York where people start taking larger and larger pieces of clothing. And eventually, she's looking apprehensive and a man cuts her bra. And when he does it, he kind of has a swagger to him. And the audience reacts like, This is not a fraternity prank. This is a piece of art. How dare you? And some boo. And all of that is recorded on the film. He scoffs and walks away. That's recorded on the film, too. She covers with her hands and remains kneeling and silent. Now, here I have to say, I'll freely admit... I never took Yoko Ono seriously as an artist. I always thought she was the one that kind of broke up the Beatles, right? And now we know that's not true. There's been enough documentaries and things like that. But I still wasn't taking her seriously as an artist. But I look at something like that. I think about it. And you say, well, what does this mean? What is she trying to say? And There's a lot of things there. It's like any piece of art. Look at a Rothko painting. It's, it's open to your interpretation in a lot of ways. It's not for her to tell you. I think she's made comments about Buddhism and the individual not having control over everything. Many people have talked about uh, Ono's family was in Tokyo when it was firebombed. She spent time in in a bomb shelter. The victim, center of the stage, hopeless. But now I see other notes, rich notes, now that we have reality TV and social media. You also see the role of the celebrity, of the person in the center Everybody watching, taking a piece. She performs cut piece a year before the infamous meeting of her and Beatle John Lennon in the London Gallery. Uh, there, she has another piece that's a ladder on the wall. And John Lennon walks up the ladder and there's a card that says, yes, it's what she does. And it has an influence on Lennon. Now, I don't want to be simplistic and say that like John Lennon wasn't thinking about anything about politics at all. It's only Ono being the influence. I mean, this is in the mid-60s. A lot of people are changing their notions. You you had the Vietnam War and other things, forcing people into politics that may not otherwise. But I can say just a year before cut piece is performed, there's an election in the United Kingdom. Douglas Alec Holm, who's the current prime minister, is running as a conservative. And the Labour Party, run by Harold Wilson, are really giving them a strong challenge. Holm decides this. He's going to say that the Beatles are Britain's finest export and we should take credit for it as the Conservative Party. And he tells candidates who are running as Conservatives to mention the Beatles at every stop. It's something that makes Britain proud and we can take pride that it happened under this government. You know, I think in reality, all he did was maybe, <laughs> I guess the government provided whatever passports were needed for travel. Very creative as a politician. And Harold Wilson seizes on this, says, well, I'm going to use it as an issue that you're using this as an issue. How dare you take credit for the Beatles? You're clothes stealing, he says. Don't you long for the days when all anybody could say about a political opponent was that they were stealing clothes? This
0: episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: And then you you get statements from the government that's like, well, the Beatles, they're wholesome and they represent everything good. And we should, and finally reporters start asking the Beatles themselves, like, what do they think? And what you find is that they're completely apolitical. In fact, they decide that they will not mail in a postal vote for the 1964 election. They say they've been traveling too much. They're not aware of political issues. I don't even know, Lennon says, who my member of parliament is in Liverpool. And Lennon adds, it's all rubbish anyway. That was then. He's going to change in a way, and certainly married to Ono, who already is, if not partisan political, is kind of change the world political. And they're going to change their messaging. And there's, there's numerous different types of press conferences to draw attention to world peace and the environment. Uh, they have their bed ends. You know, I mean, prior to reality TV, Ono and Lennon were pretty good at getting attention by doing something wild. They have a press conference where they appear in a bag. You know, I could just tell you, you know, appearance isn't that important. But instead, Lennon and Ono appear in a bag. But they're also going to get involved or want to get involved in a particular election in a way that's a, maybe a little more partisan, especially because the nominee is so different than any other party nominee had been, so much more left-wing and liberal that it's a match for them. The prospect of all these new young voters really helped to help them in that process. First, youth voting has to go through the Supreme Court. I talked about this in 2013. You're listening mostly to this this podcast from 2013 originally, and uh, I think it holds up. Well, not too much to change in it. I will be back later to talk about the recent midterm. In Armour, Michigan, John Lennon, former Beatle, along with the Plastic Ono Band, plays in a special concert for a cause. A Michigan man, poet, and activist, was sentenced to 10 years' prison for possession of two marijuana cigarettes. 10 years' prison. Lennon brought attention to his case. All we are saying, he sang, is give peace a chance. His drummer for this first appearance by the former Beatle in the United States since the breakup of his band was Jerry Rubin, not only a drummer but an activist. Lennon was taking a stand against the Vietnam War, and 15,000 fans cheered on their fab singer, even if the timing and performance wasn't as good as his Beatles days. Except one man in the back was scribbling notes. He measured the attendance, the actions of the crowd. He even commented on the singing. Yoko, he wrote, is off-key. But he was not a music reviewer from Rolling Stone. He was a Federal Bureau of Investigation agent. Part of a secret investigation of the rock star. The Ann Arbor concert was one of just many planned by the rock star. Concerts to entertain, but also with a political cause. In this year, 1972, Richard Nixon would be up for re-election. Lenin opposed his Vietnam policy and wanted to register voters at his concerts, voters that would support George McGovern, the Democratic and anti-war candidate. A new constitutional amendment, the 26th, had been ratified, and 11 million new voters, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, would enter the electorate. No doubt this alarmed the White House at a time when colleges and government buildings were being routinely occupied by student protesters. A letter from Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina to Attorney General Mitchell, advised him that Lennon might be deported as a strategic countermeasure. The FBI started investigating Lennon in January of 1972. In May, when he sought to renew his visa, the INS rejected it. He should not be in the country at all, the agency said, because he had pleaded guilty to a marijuana charge in the U.K. a few years before. And under a policy, that should have stopped the Lennon visa in the first place. Rockstar vs. White House. The fight was on. Oddly enough, that fight had its genesis with President Dwight David Eisenhower, not known to be a Beatles fan, who had as much interest in youth voting as the former Beatle. The former general, who had led the young into war before subscribe to the point of view of the American Legion and the VFW and many others. Old enough to fight, old enough to vote. That call had been heard before when vets returned from World War I. And in the 50s, as a peacetime draft of 18-year-olds was instituted for Cold War readiness, Eisenhower used his 1954 State of the Union to make a pitch. For years, he said. Citizens 18 to 19 have been, in a time of peril, summoned to fight for America. They should participate in the political process that produces this fateful summons. A couple of states had already extended the franchiser in the manner that the veterans groups in Eisenhower wanted. Georgia, for instance, allowed 18 to 20-year-olds to vote, and they had done so Since 1943, as a patriotic act, they also had a liberal uh, governor at the time. Kentucky would begin allowing 19 and up to vote uh, since 1955. Eisenhower and Senate Republicans would try to accomplish that nationally. SJ53 reached the Senate floor in May 1954 following Ike's speech with powerful support from significant Republican senators. William Langer of North Dakota noted, That if 18-year-olds were operating complex equipment like bomber aircraft in the military and artillery systems, but then were treated like illiterates when it came time for election, the maturity required to exercise the feats of warfare is commensurate with the maturity to choose candidates, Langer said. Everett Dirksen of Illinois felt that young voters would be better than those older voters in city wards who were sometimes handed a ballot and told to vote for whoever the political machine wanted. I don't see how they could do any worse. Dirksen said. Others argued that because young people were learning civics in school, because they were in touch with their education being so present in their lives, they would be highly active in politics, and that's what the country needed. With education more recent and even more advanced than older adults, they would be better citizens. Yet there were opponents to SJ 53, and the strongest were the Southern Democratic senators. Richard Russell, opposed to national youth voting despite the position of his own home state, argued against it. I believe one of the countries that allow 18-year-olds to vote is Russian. His view echoed the view of other senators and House members opposed to the measure. Because of the lack of maturity, youth would vote for dictators and extremists. In terms of the old-enough-to-fight argument, Spencer Holland of Florida said... It is as different as night and day. One is duty, the other is citizenship. Richard Russell added that 10-year-olds fought in the Civil War, but no one would talk of extending the franchise to them. And another point, if you tie voting to fighting, then a converse argument would be applied in some future date. If you're old enough to vote, you're old enough to fight. And then, by God, the senator argued, you will have women in combat duty. The arguments were scare tactics, of course, but enough for SJ-53 to fail. It would need two-thirds of that body and didn't get it. The issue was brought up from time to time after the 1950s, but largely buried until Vietnam. Then, Robert Kennedy, senator from New York in the late 60s, and several others renewed the fight. Old enough to fight, they said, old enough to vote. We should note that this fight was a completely new one. In the United States history, for the most part, adherence to the English tradition was observed. A squire who served well would be eligible for knighthood at 21, sometimes 20, but generally 21 years. This informal law became 21 years and was expressed as full age of an adult. In America, early America, militia members 18 or 19 may have been casting votes for their militia captains, a form of democracy, but when it came to the states, it was universally 21. Pennsylvania's 1776 Constitution notes, every free man of the full age of 21 years shall enjoy the right of elector. Pennsylvania's Constitution was one of the most liberal about the voting franchise, but not in terms of age. Massachusetts said 21 years and worth at least 60 pounds in freehold. North Carolina said freemen of 21 years. New York says full age, but didn't mention the age. It was considered to be that 21. Extending the franchise below 21 years is a 20th century idea. Vietnam, the brunt of which was fought by 18 to 20-year-olds, as their sacrifice continued, the group proved too much of a catalyst to resist. When the renewal of the Voting Rights Act came up in 1970, Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts attached an amendment allowing 18 to 20-year-olds to vote in federal election. President Nixon was politically careful. He expressed support for the concept of youth voting. He had been Eisenhower's vice president and was supporting the administration during that Senate push. He agreed in the general concept of youth voting, but felt the method was unconstitutional. The federal government could not force states to run elections in a certain way. So, senators began talking about an amendment. Nixon, in a memo, noted to his aide Ehrlichman that the offer should be stalled. Give someone direct orders and responsibility to stop this. If it comes to us, we'll have to sign. The Supreme Court ruled that Congress could not indeed demand that states conduct elections in a certain way, but they had no objection to 18-, 19-, or 20-year-olds voting and opened the way for a constitutional amendment push. It was passed by two-thirds of both houses and ratified by three-fourths of the states. Now, here's the thing about the 26th Amendment to the Constitution. It was ratified in four months. That is a record. It was such a popular idea and changed things so much pundits were talking about these new voters that would be present in the 72 election. Some wondered if new idols, rock stars, could affect the change. John Lennon released his song Imagine in 1971, a piano ballad for peace. Despite its soft touch, the song took on rhetorically Religion, nationalism, country, materialism, and reached much farther than those angry songs which weren't charting as high. It reached number three on the Billboard charts. It reflected a more radical, interventionist thinking on the part of the now 31-year-old rock star. No longer creating songs about fields of strawberries and skies of diamonds, he was still using his imagination, but aiming his cannon on Earth. Optimistic, dreamy, but still with clear targets. It remains today one of the most popular songs ever. In the next year, John Lennon started to think that maybe he and Yoko could influence politics. They made appearances on David Frost, Michael Douglas, Dick Cabot talk shows. They made more radical songs. Song about John Sinclair, the imprisoned activist another controversial song about the Attica prison riot. They made a surprise appearance at an Apollo Theater event benefiting relatives of prison guards and prisoners at that riot. He added songs about feminism and attacked his mother country, siding with the Irish in the Northern Ireland squabble and attacking English policy. But these efforts weren't reaching popular success. The album Sometime in New York released in 72, containing these radical songs, reached only 48 on the billboard. But in terms of the concerts and directly registering students to vote against Richard Nixon in the midst of the deportation battle and wanting to stay in New York City, not wanting to go back to the UK, Lennon's immigration lawyers advised that he play down the more radical aspect. In May 1972, Lennon said he would not perform in a protest concert at the Republican Convention in Miami Beach significantly reducing the presence of that protest. And the beginning of the next year, the FBI case was dropped against Lenin due to the inactivity of the subject in revolutionary activity. The INS continued.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
2: What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: As the campaign went on, McGovern posed little challenge. McGovern opposed the Vietnam War, which was a popular issue, but split the Democratic Party lost support of many conservative Democrats for Nixon, bungled the choice of a vice president, and appeared too radical for most Americans. While young voters were McGovern's best-performing group, Nixon won 18- to 29-year-olds, the demo group in which 18-, 19-, and 20-year-old voters are generally categorized. Nixon won this group by 52%. 50% of them turned out in 1972 which would turn out to be a historic record only recently matched. John Lennon didn't take the news very well. He stayed in his bedroom for six months. Watching returns in the apartment of activist, sometimes drummer Jerry Rubin, he screamed against the middle class. He said he could join the weathermen now. On April 1st, 1973, John and Yoko held a press conference announcing a new nation of Newtopia. Its embassy would be a downtown Manhattan apartment. It would be a country of mind and soul. No borders, no boundaries, no passports. Its flag would be a white handkerchief. They asked for a UN membership. Despite their common interest as Newtopian ambassadors, the relationship between John and Yoko soured. Lennon recorded mind games in order to fulfill his record contract, he went off to Los Angeles on an 18-month affair with May Ping, one of Yoko's assistants. Yoko had set the whole thing up. I'd rather see him go with you, she told Mae, than someone else. L.A. didn't go well. Lennon partied with Keith Moon, Ringo Starr. He drank a lot, recorded an album with Phil Spector that led to a fight in the studio. Lennon made a scene at the opening of a Smothers Brothers show got into a fight over record lyrics, ended up with a lawsuit. Then he moved back to New York, tried to get Yoko to take him back. At first, Yoko refused, later got back together with John. 1976 saw the youth vote fail to be a radical force, dramatically changing politics that it was expected. Sure, Jimmy Carter won the 18 to 29-year-old demo by a narrow 51%. But turnout dropped 8 percentage points since the McGovern campaign. And Carter, the former conservative governor of Georgia, who had gone to the Miami Beach Convention four years earlier to stop McGovern, was no radical. Nonetheless, Lennon did attend his inauguration. Only with intense lobbying, a letter-writing campaign including famous Americans New York City Mayor John Lindsay, novelist John Updike and Joyce Carol Oates, poet Gregory Corso, artist Jasper Johns, singer Joan Baez, the note from Bob Dylan. In 1975, finally, an administrative court signed the renewal of Lenin's visa. To those of the 60s generation who thought that lowering the voting age would change politics, it didn't work in the way envisioned 18- to 29-year-olds turned out in the lowest numbers of any group in the electorate, from 50% when the new vote was a novelty to 36% turnout in the 1988 election. Nor did they vote the way that Ted Kennedy or John Lennon had expected. In his 1984 re-election, President Ronald Reagan, the oldest candidate ever, enjoyed the support of 59% of 18- to 29-year-olds. When his VP, George Herbert Walker Bush, ran for his own presidential term, 53% of those 18- to 29-year-olds voted for him. These voters were behaving more like General Eisenhower would have liked. Loyal troops for the GOP not stuck with Daddy's New Dealism. Things changed a bit in 1992 when presidential candidate Bill Clinton made an appearance on MTV. He won the age group and got 47% of them to turn out. And Clinton-Gore scored higher among this group than any other. But in the stalemate election of 2000, debates about Social Security lockboxes, two VP candidates that, whatever their qualities, were... A little short of MTV material, Lieberman and Cheney. Only 36% of the 18 to 29-year-olds turned out in that 2000 election. It was the 2004 election that would change this. Turnout reached the levels of when the franchise was first extended. 54% cast votes for John Kerry in his losing campaign. 66% for Obama in 2008, and 67% for Obama in 2012. Tufts University's exit polls showed that in the 2012 election, 50% of the 18- to 29-year-olds turned out nationally, 58% in swings. There was demographic change as well. The youth vote now is more diverse. Among white 18- to 29-year-olds, Romney won narrowly, 51- to 49% but lost among all 18 to 29-year-olds, which is 33%. So what you may have now is Nixon's nightmare and John Lennon's dream, a young electorate that votes for the Democratic Party by super majorities, something that will be tough to counter and will affect at least 2016 and 2020, if not more presidential elections. I'd like to make a couple quick points on that, though. One is that it's hard to keep dynasties in politics, and it's hard to win when you have to rely on a supermajority of anyone. The operations required to keep the youth vote in your corner must be repeated again and again with excellent performance. The Republican Party need not win back all of the youth vote to be competitive, but just needs to cut some of it down. If we look at the youth vote, we see that drop between Clinton-Gore and Gore-Lieberman. That's a lesson to what happens to you when you turn down the excitement in presidential elections. And then, for a party to truly win, especially if they're relying on a significant amount of youth voters, these voters will need to discover midterms where congressmen and state legislatures are elected. Otherwise, the Congress, the state legislatures, who increasingly have a role in creating the congressional districts to their way, will ignore the wishes of these voters since they weren't voting in great numbers. In 2010, just 24% of 18 to 29-year-olds voted. In Ohio, that was just 21%. The 26th Amendment did not change the political world immediately. But it may have come to fruition now. This is really a recent event, just as 2004, that is becoming a significant force. We end with an intriguing proposal. Should we extend the franchise further to those Americans younger than 18? How about 16, 17-year-olds? few countries do it. A Danish member of the EU parliament has proposed it for the European Union? No one in the United States is significantly proposing it, of course. Well, I think it's obvious why not. 16- and 17-year-olds are not mature enough. They may be influenced easily by others. They don't have a stake in the game. They don't own anything. They might be more intellectual than experienced. They can't sign contracts. Of course, these arguments against youth voting in the past and a form of all this rhetoric was used against African-Americans and women in terms of suffrage in the past. I don't propose to support 16-year-old voting by any means, but merely point to that line of tension to render visible that issues of suffrage are still alive today. Some of the issues about voting based on property, about needing a stake in the game to vote, about the maturity of the people, issues that were so important in the Constitutional Convention have not been ended by modernity alone. Should youth voting at the levels that we saw in the 2012 presidential election continue significantly into several midterm elections? Well, there's several possibilities. One, you could see a reversal of some of the expected midterm loss trends. Oh, my prophetic soul, I guess, right? Because... That's what happened in 2018 midterm and then in the 2022 midterm. Also the 2020 presidential election, but let's keep it to midterms right now. He said an estimated in swing states as much as 31% of voters 18 to 29 voted. That's still lower than it could be, but it's... uh, A much higher percentage than in past elections. In the 2020 presidential election, half of eligible voters voted. Largely, they voted for Democrats, and so that changed the usual midterm trend. Now, I would be more prophetic if I hadn't said this back in 2013. I wouldn't bet on it. I think it'll continue, and 2014 will be a bad one for the present administration, barring some kind of national emergency. But a supermajority of youth voting could possibly change it. You'll also see changes in issue. Right now, in terms of the youth vote, the only issue change that I can identify significantly is the provision for health care for 26-year-olds that was provided in the Obama health care reform and legislation on student loans. Right now, a lot of our federal programs are skewed towards the aged. Well, one, because it's needed, and two, because they turn out to vote in great numbers and are Among the most reliable turnout, even with the increases in 2012, we're still only talking about nearly half of that part of the electorate voting. And if the changes in the turnout persist, you will see a change accordingly in American policy. The Congress and the president can only be, at some point, reflective generally of who shows up. There still are some limitations to this whole idea of... um, Gen Z, younger Gen Y voting, and what it's doing to elections. For instance, it's very much dependent on the state you're in. So in 2020, the youth vote, for instance, 18 to 29, in Colorado was 64% turned out. In Arkansas, it's just 35%. Look at this year, 2022, from what we have so far. So Mark Kelly, he's winning the 18 to 29 vote vote. By 76%. Fetterman in Pennsylvania by 70%. But Tim Ryan in Ohio is winning it just by 59%. So you see there where some limitations might be. And those two winning uh, winning Senate candidates, Kelly and Fetterman, for instance, also win the next category, 30 to 44-year-olds. Now, when I first started this podcast, I would have been in that group. Now I'm not. But we'll leave that be. I'm an old
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What's my point there? A lot's going to be made about this youth vote, and maybe so much that some campaigns are going to change their approach to a fault, because I still think you kind of need both those groups. If you want to win, you got to be winning 18 to 29 and Thirty to forty-four. I mean, gosh, helps if you could win some other groups too, but uh, you you got to be winning those two, I think, to really count yourself successful. I still think the younger vote has to show up in state elections. We'll see if that happens. There's a lot of publicity for this midterm, maybe more than usual because of the Dobbs decision, or maybe we're onto something. I mean, the trend is upward. There's more voting. Um, it's circle from Tufts University. That gives us that figure that in swing states, 31%, in other states, 27% of 18 to 29-year-olds voted. Will they continue? One thing to note, which goes against this trend, if you take, you know, it's not just about where young people live necessarily, because if you take the states with the lowest median age, that's Utah, Texas, Alaska, North Dakota, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Idaho. And I don't see the youth revolution in politics as much there the next level of states there is california kansas georgia colorado south dakota louisiana washington and indiana so quite and that's quite a mixed you know more of a mixed group but certainly it's not universal that states where there's a lot of young people so it's where they are uh, what their politics are and their desire to come out and perhaps it's also about like what campaigns have done to reach out to them, how easy maybe states make it to vote, how much they're encouraged to register. All of these things are going to be a factor. Does it change politics forever? We talked about this, cast how like Bill Clinton, you know, I think thought that he and Democrats were getting somewhere generationally and, and more than that, permanently, with his appearances on MTV, say, Rock the Vote, and him being asked about boxes or, Boxers or briefs, right? Showing that he could be cool, you know, playing the saxophone. The saxophone isn't exactly like an instrument of young people. In the nineties, you were a little closer to it still being in music. There's a lot of songs in the 80s that's still at saxophone, but you know, still a little bit, you know, Clinton's an older guy, at least reaching out to to younger folks. Um did it last? I think there's still things that happen as you get older that change your politics. Doesn't mean everyone becomes What one party views as a conservative, but maybe small see some issues change as you get, you know, as your life changes. Um, So you're not necessarily going to have them forever. You have to keep getting a new group of young voters out for for that to continue and for it to change politics in that way. My I think a disaster for any party would to be have if I see Biden and Schumer Glenn Youngkin out there in uh, Fetterman-style hoodies. You know, that's not the message here, guys. You probably won't. Another thing to consider, parties get nuanced. Professional politicians figure out, there's focus groups, they figure out how to talk to politics, to, to voters. This is their job. So you can expect that they will start to do their best to break up this group by finding various wedge issues. Like, well, how much money are you willing for the government to spend? How much do you want to be taxing? You know, and finding issues that don't work. On the other hand, I think some of the politics that have gone on like last five years, which just I, I say whatever I want. That's a novelty. It works with some. Um, it works with people that feel they've, been the underdog for a while, you know, and things like that. Finally, someone's fighting and all of that. But done continuously, you might be reaching a limit. It's like, no, you might have to think about what you are saying, and it might have to match this group. But you're going to get more professional politicians that will be able to do that. We'll be able to nuance and compete in 18 to 29 better and win 30 to 44 and win elections. So, it's by no means some kind of permanent change. Uh, you know how I feel about people saying, like, your side's going to win forever. But I do think there's a little bit of change. Like, certain issues, they're just going to have to drop. I mean, the pot issue, I think, with small limits, you're just going to have to drop that. The, the, the who you are issues, like, let people be who they are and stop developing laws there. We're just going to drop. And if they don't, I think they're finished. The Supreme Court is a real liability. With this 18 to 29 group, and I would argue with the 30 to 44 as well, with the way that they decide things, uh, because they are a Supreme Court. That's not; They're not supposed to be in politics, but since they're perceived as being, you know, they're appointed by Republicans, a number of them by one president, it's owned by that political party. So this will, these will all be factors. What's going to happen? Well, you know, I predicted somewhat well in 2013, but that's the extent of predictions that I'll make. I would just be a little cautious of saying, like, oh, this is going to happen forever. You got a surprise election because you didn't consider this group enough, certainly. I want to thank you for listening. My website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like this program, do a couple things that can help out. If you really want to, we got a Patreon site. It's on the website. If you can spread the word on your own blog on your own email um, to friends on your Facebook on your Twitter on your counter social whatever you're using these days Instagram tell people about my history can beat up your politics it's a, a weird mix of stuff not everyone's you know going to know about it immediately you know it's history and politics and um, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts, preferably that's great. Uh, if if you write a review or don't want to write a review, can you mark helpful those reviews you agree with? And uh, subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Subscribe or follow. Thanks for listening.